Genesis chapter 49, verse 29. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were buried. There, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, were buried. And there, I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of uh, Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with them. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there, Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, where Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers their sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. 
His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome to you. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, um, uh, I'm just going to clear myself some space. I'm feeling crowded by the band, who were excellent this morning. Uh, also wanted to let you know that this morning we have the belonging course. It starts at 12 o'clock, which includes lunch. Belonging is kind of like we say the gateway into the life of our church, uh, and it's a chance for us to talk and reflect on uh, what St. Stephen's is. Every church is different. There's some things, of course, that we hope are consistent across every church, but uh, every church has also got its, its kind of unique things, and belonging is a great way to, to learn about those, but also then to take another step into the centre of our church community. That's actually where we want everyone to be. So um, if you're interested in that, you can have a chat with me or Jill Chilton. Jill was at the door this morning. Um, and let us know. We've still got some spots uh, available there, so we'd love to have you join us for lunch. Uh, it goes from 12 till 3 this afternoon. This, uh, this morning, we are um, finishing a series that we have run for, uh, for a, a month, sorry, for two months. Uh, we started back in June. We're in June, July. We took a break in August. We've come back for the last two weeks of it uh, this month. In Genesis... And we're closing off this series. It's actually been more than two months because if you were here last year, we spent about two months looking at the first 11 chapters. This year, we've been looking at these, the story of these key figures in Genesis uh, who form the, the starting point of Israel's history. Now, as we think about the ending of a story, uh, what makes a good ending? In our family, we found a copy of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves um, in, if you don't know the story, let me fill you in. Pretty young girl. Uh, she's got a, obviously, a wicked stepmother. Who would be a stepmother? I tell you, it's terrible, isn't it? Uh, and she has to flee a stepmother. She gets found by seven dwarves. It's a completely politically incorrect story. You wouldn't write it like that now. Uh, she lives in the forest for a while, but then gets poisoned by the stepmother and she's only rescued by the kiss of a Prince Charming. 
Now, that's how the story ends, so I'll spoil it for you if you haven't heard it before. Um, but my kids love it, which is slightly disturbing. But what if you would have changed the story? You know, we read it, we've read it so many times. What if you would have changed the story, the end of this story? What if it ended like this instead? Snow White lay in her see-through casket. No Prince Charming ever arrived. The seven dwarves slowly aged and eventually passed away. And finally, the ravages of age and time took their toll on Snow White. Her porcelain skin lost its luster and she too passed away, only to rot in full view because of the see-through casket. The end. What do you reckon? Great, isn't it? Actually, in our, in our culture, it might, might actually pass. But it's a terrible ending, isn't it? It's a terrible ending. We have an in, intuition that's just not how stories are meant to end. But here's what's really interesting about the book of Genesis. We've read the last chapter. Jacinta just read the last words of the book of Genesis. It is this great story of the first people, the first of God's people, this great story, great characters. It finishes with the death of two of its major characters, Jacob, who we met back in Genesis 25 and has continued all the way till now, dies at the start of our reading. And Joseph, who we met in about Genesis 36, 37, and continues through till now, he also dies. In fact, the very last thing we read of in Genesis is about a coffin. There is no Prince Charming. Have you noticed that? It's a very interesting ending. It's because this whole chapter, this whole conclusion of this book is actually about death. It's about death. And what's really interesting is to reflect on the, nature, the way that death is approached. A quick recap. We, we have seen this family go through tremendous turmoil. And finally, uh, Jacob is about to die. He gives his blessing to his children. He organises kind of his funeral. He tells them about this cave that he purchased many, many decades ago. He says, go and bury me there. And then he dies. Uh, the sons and the family grieve for his death. They then form this huge train of people along with the Egyptians, kind of, I think, as a reflection of the high standing in which the Egyptians hold Joseph. And so they, they take Jacob back to this cave in Canaan and they bury him there, only to then return back to work. Now, that's the story, but what is really interesting is to consider the events in light of everything we know First start with Jacob. This is very interesting because Jacob is a guy who spends most of his life running away from something and in conflict with something. If you just have a quick, a quick cursory reflection on the story of Jacob, first of all, he's born as a young baby grasping at the heel of his brother. That's why he gets his name. And then he steals his brother's birthright in that infamous moment where Esau trades it off for a bowl of soup only soon after to then steal his blessing with the help of his mother when he tricks his father into it. Having then obviously ended up on the bad side of Esau, he flees only to end up with his uncle Laban, who he then is in conflict with the whole time until he too has to flee Laban. And then while he's in the desert fleeing his uncle with his family, of course, there's conflict there between his two wives as well. He wrestles with God famously in the desert, only to have his hip dislocated. And then he reconciles with his brother, Esau, but kind of reconciles because he lies to him, if you know the story. 
and goes his own way, never to really encounter Esau again until he finally returns home to bury his father. Esau's whole story is of a man at conflict with God, raging against God, at conflict with his family, always on the run. Most of his life is spent nomadically running through the desert with his family in train. This is who Jacob is. Now consider how he dies. It's very interesting. This is what Moses says. Moses says, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, sons, he drew up, drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Isn't that interesting? Jacob, this, this dissatisfied, discontent person, who spends his whole life seemingly looking for something, dies in a, in a sense of contentment and peace. You know, it's, it's so calm, his ending. He draws his feet up into his bed. He, 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 he's, in other words, he's sitting on the side of the bed, he's talking to his brothers, he says, I'm going to die now. Gets into bed, pulls the cover over. We're told he breathed his last. Actually, the KJVs, the King James Version says, gave up his spirit. I love that. Because he's a guy who's been grasping his whole life. And yet in his death, he kind of willingly just lets it go. Just lets it go. And here's a guy who spent his whole life running from his family. He's finally gathered to his people. This is the conclusion of Jacob's life. Jacob is a man who's at peace. He's at peace with his lot when he dies. It's quite an extraordinary conclusion to a life of tumult, a life of upheaval, a life of of angst and conflict. Here is how Jacob dies. And then you compare him to Joseph. So Joseph, upon hearing of his father's death, we're told, uh, threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. And Moses, very, Moses is the one who's, who captures all of this story in uh, written form later for us, you see. So that's why I say Moses. Moses is very deliberate about reflecting three things about he throws himself on him he weeps for him and he kisses him there is ultimate affection for for um for the passing of jacob because joseph loves his father he grieves his father's loss this is real grief he feels real pain and the repetition is there to make this very clear and what you see is this complex interaction here with death You've got the peace, you've got the contentment, you've got the acceptance of Jacob, and you've got the grief of Joseph. And I think it reminds us that actually the Bible's vision of how God's people meet death is very nuanced. You don't just kind of confidently charge into it, and yet we're not, we're not despairing about it. This is what uh, Job says in the Old Testament. He's just lost his children and he says the lord gave and the lord has taken away may the name of the lord be praised now i I reckon if that happened to someone and as a minister i went and counseled them to say that 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 would almost be that would be offensive i think to most people but do you see how the bible is like addressing this great question of death this is how job addresses it It's not just Job because in the New Testament, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. I mean, you grieve. But his point is, 
You grieve in a very different way as one of God's people. You approach death in a very different way as one of God's people. There's a balance taking place, I think. And I think the two people here, um, Jacob and Joseph, kind of capture this. Jacob, as the one who faces it himself, is at peace with what is coming. Joseph, who has to contemplate the loss of his father, is in grief. But the two kind of balance them off. Peace, you see, this is not peace. This is peace instead of an anxiety about death. And it's grief, but not grief that disappears into despair. And so the Bible's picture, actually, of death, which emerges at the end of this story and then is carried through the rest of the Bible's account, is very complex. And it reminds us the Bible is dealing with real people. These are not heroes the way we think in mythological terms of heroes. Their lives are hard and they're complex, and yet they're confronting as well. They're not just an affirmation of how you do things. They're challenging you. And in this case, they're challenging us. Now, you might say, okay, yes, grief, I get that that grief disappearing into despair, that's a problem, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But peace disappearing into anxiety, like, how does death make us anxious? Well, let's return back to the story, because I think the story is really interesting. So, um, Joseph goes off, he does his father's job, his, his father's request, he goes and buries him, he returns back to work, which I think in itself is really interesting, actually, because... He could have just kind of drawn a line in the sand and said, Pharaoh, I'm done. My father is dead. I'm done. I'm so marked by this death, I can't return. But there is a sense of like, the death has happened, the burial has happened, and now I must return back to my life as it is. He returns back, but his brothers, you'll notice, are very anxious because they, they're fearful. Remember, these are the brothers who threw him into slavery, and so he experienced like 10 years of great suffering at their hand, 10 or more years of great suffering at their hand. They are the result of his entry into the heart of darkness, so to speak, right? And so they're very worried that he will seek retribution, or they say they will, he will reward us for the evil that we did, which he'd totally be entitled to do when you think about the life of, of Joseph. He would be entitled to reward his brothers for all that they've done, all that they've caused him. And so they concoct, it seems like they concoct this story. They say, oh, your father told us to tell you this, which seems bizarre because why wouldn't he just tell him directly? But anyway, they concoct this story and this is what they say. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. He said, they're so anxious. They're so anxious that their past sin, their past failing and their guilt will come back to revisit them. They need to deal with it. There's something really, really profound there. See, death, death makes us anxious about our guilt. It makes us anxious about our sins and our failings. It makes us anxious about the mistakes that we've made, actually. Now, for them, they're anxious about the relationship they have because now their father is no longer a buffer between them and Joseph. They're worried that Joseph actually hates them, is what they say. But actually, our anxiety is deeper than that. We're not just worried about retribution from another human. We are deeply anxious, ultimately, about retribution from God. 
And so when we face death, we, we are confronted with this anxiety. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is not finality. It's sin. The sting of death is sin. We might think that the sting of death is finality. You won't see that person again. He says, the sting of death is your guilt. My guilt. My failings. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now, you might be out there saying, oh, look, if you're a Christian, sure, death, death might be something that you'll feel all weighed down by your guilt because that's all you Christians talk about is guilt and sin, right? But I want to tell you, I think actually deep down we all have this, this lurking fear, lurking fear that our mistakes and our failings will come back to haunt us. You know, about four or five years ago, um, a rugby union player posted a tweet talking about hell and judgment. Now, I'm not saying I think he did the right thing or that was the right venue for that conversation to take place. But what was very interesting was the torrent of kind of abuse that came towards him for, for declaring that some people might go to hell. It's interesting because I guess if you don't believe in guilt and shame and hell, then so what if someone says that? But maybe if deep down you do believe in that, then that is a very worrying idea. A very worrying idea that you might have to answer for your mistakes, your failings, that there is a standard that you have to meet, that in fact the sting of death is sin. Here's what um, a guy, Paul Tournier, he wrote a great book about guilt and sin, and this is what he writes. He says, The idea that man defiles and degrades everything he touches, although it does not reach such intensity in healthy people, nonetheless exists in everyone. It is a measure of the existential guilt which every man bears vaguely within himself. He's saying, The idea that man defiles and degrades everything he touches... It might not, you might not feel it when you're healthy, he says. That's very interesting, isn't it? Although it doesn't, it doesn't reach its intensity, that sense that you've, you've degraded things when you're healthy. But when you're weak, when you sense your mortality, when you might be coming to the end of the storyline, ah, then it exists in everyone. And that existential get which every man bears vaguely with himself, it bubbles up. Bubbles up, he says. This is, this is the challenge. And I, I want to say, there's a really important pastoral takeaway from this. When you are confronted with death and you feel that anxiety, do not distract yourself out of it. It's there. It's actually a divine providence, that moment. It's a divine providence to be confronted, to be forced to ask this question. And most of us spend most of our life distracting our life, distracting our minds from thinking about this question. But you know what? It does haunt us because I've done a fair few number of funerals at this church now. And it's really interesting. People take time out of work. They take time out of home. They get dressed up in their best. They turn up here and they're weighed down with sadness because in that moment they cannot escape that existential reality that there might be some guilt to be paid for. There might be some guilt to be paid for. Do not miss the opportunity that that provides you with.
It's an opportunity, right? It is an opportunity for the brothers in this story. They're confronted by it, and they come. They come to Joseph, and they confess their sins. You notice they probably had, they hadn't confessed their sins earlier, even though Joseph had, had reconciled with them in the last, the last reading we had last week. They actually never said sorry for what they did. But they do have a great prayer of confession where they humble themselves, a bit like the younger brother in the prodigal son does as well. There's some echoes there of, you know, I'll be your, we'll be your slaves, a bit like the younger brother come back to the father. Um, and, and so we have a question here. When we do that, when we come to God recognising the guilt that is due the, the, the debt that's due, the guilt that must be paid for, what can we expect from God is the question. What can we expect from him? Well, the story, I guess, the story helps us with this by first looking at what, what, can they, what do they receive from Joseph? They come to him, they confess their sin, and what is, it Joseph, what is it Joseph does? Verse 17, when their message came to him, they didn't even come in person. Right? When their message came to him, Joseph Joseph wept. Joseph wept. Joseph only weeps twice in his life, despite how hard his life is. He weeps for his father and he weeps for his brothers. He's such a beautiful man, Joseph. He really is. He has so many reasons for self-pity and he never steps down them. And here his brothers come seeking forgiveness and he weeps for them. And then he says this. He says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph responds to their request for forgiveness with love and benevolence. He provides for them. He responds to their forgiveness with love and benevolence. And he says, actually, in verse 19 and 20, I can only do this because... This is what God has decided he's going to do for you. So how can I be any different? God has decided he's going to be benevolent to you. He's going to be kind to you. So how can I be any different? And and Joseph's response to his brothers is just a hint, actually, of how God will treat us, ultimately, if we come to him like his brothers come to Joseph. God will respond to us. Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Paul, in his um, book, continues on. He says this. My clicker is losing battery, I think. But the wonderful announcement of God's free grace, which effaces, that means erases guilt runs up against the intuition which every man has that a price must be paid. He says, you have an intuition, you have guilt that needs to be dealt with. Well, God's grace erases that sense that you have to deal with it. It erases it. And then he goes on and he says, the reply which comes in the supreme message of the Bible, it's supreme revelation, it is God himself who pays. God himself has paid the price once for all, and the most costly that could be paid, his own death in Jesus Christ on the cross. The obliteration of our guilt is free for us because God paid the price. See, he's saying, there is a price to be paid. You don't have to pay it, says God's grace, because Jesus paid it. 
He paid it. And so when we have that question, what can we expect when we bring our sin to God? Well, you can expect to have your guilt erased because of Jesus. You can have, expect to have your guilt erased because of Jesus. The brothers didn't know that. They received it. You know it. It's promised to you. It's achieved for you. But secondly, you can also expect something else. I think you can expect, I, you can expect what Joseph expected. So after this moment, the story continues, and Joseph um, kind of lives a pretty great life the last years. He has a family. God graciously gives him grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they sit on his knee. It's kind of like, I think it's the way of God saying, you never got this, so let me give it to you now. It's beautiful, right? But then he, he comes to his own death, and much like his father, he prepares for it and meets it resolutely. And this is what he says to his brothers and to the, to the well, it's not his brothers really, it's his brother's family. God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph says, I'm going to die, but God's going to come rescue you. He's going to take you back to the promised land of Canaan and I want, to, I want you to get my bones in the coffin and take them back. Now that is bizarre. That is weird. I want you to dig up a grave and I want you to put that rotting coffin, because this is 400 years, right? This is definitely like, this is like dust, right? I'm gonna, I want you to pick that up, I want you to take it back to Canaan and rebury it. One Greek philosopher says this, hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope. What is going on there? This is such a crazy idea. I mean, we kind of think, oh, that's kind of cute, but it's really weird. I've got an illustration for you. Actually, I, I, I went to, my, to our garden yesterday. I dug up a plant and I repotted it for you. Let me go and get it for you. Here it is. If you can't tell... Don't want it to fall over. You can't tell. That plant's dead. It's 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 definitely dead. This is not some kind of. I haven't got a magic trick here. I'm not going to go like this and it's going to come back to life. It's dead. It's been dead for three months. I left it in the ground for three months, hoping beyond hope that somehow when spring came, something miraculous would happen and a shoot of green would come out. Nothing has happened. It was so easy to pull out of the ground. And then I repotted it. What? That's just, just that's, that's a stupid thing to do, right? I mean, I'm obviously, clearly not a good gardener, but I don't, I don't think even Don Burke could have brought this thing back to life. It's dead. But Joseph is saying, I want you to do that. Because he has a strong, strong conviction that God is capable of bringing his dead bones back to life in some sense, to receive his promises in some way. This is not just a token thing. He will benefit somehow from God's great promise in the future. Now, he doesn't know how that's possible. He doesn't. 
He's just taking God's promise. You know, God never speaks to Joseph. You think, oh, all these people God spoke. He never speaks to Joseph. He only has God's promise because he heard it from Jacob. But he believes it. He believes it. And he wants to be in God's presence because he believes even as dead bones, it's better to be in God's presence. Now we know, we know because Jesus Christ was buried for three days and then rose again, that God can indeed bring dead bones back to life. And we know indeed that God can restore what is dead and give it life and life to the full. And so we know that Joseph was not wrong, but profoundly right. More right than he realised. And you might look at your life and think it is dead. Maybe your body is wasting away and you think, I am close to death. Or maybe you are spiritually aware that you are bankrupt and so you are dead inside. But you can expect if you come to Jesus that he will bring you back to life. First spiritually and ultimately physically. And when you can expect these two things, that God will meet you in your guilt and erase it for you because of Christ, and he will meet you in your death and bring you to life, you see how suddenly you start to approach death as a Christian in a different way. You have peace in response to the anxiety of your guilt. In fact, you can face your guilt without hiding from it. And you can have grief which never disappears into despair because God's story doesn't end with death. It ends with life. May God repot us in his kingdom, the kingdom of his risen son. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the great story of the gospel that begins all the way back here in these pages of Genesis and what Joseph couldn't see, Lord, but believed we have seen and heard because of the Lord Jesus, and so now can trust wholeheartedly that though he was dead, he now lives. And though we might die, we will live because of Christ. Heavenly Father, would you send your Holy Spirit and so fill us with such deep conviction and confidence in the truth of the gospel that we would not hold on to the things of this life but long for the life to come, the life which Jesus has provided us. We pray this in Jesus' name.